0: Well, hey, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Timothy, open up to the book. Hey, let's make a deal right now. If I or anyone else who ever speaks in this church gets up here without a Bible, do you promise to bring that person a Bible? Huh? Will you do that? Oh, I, I'll say open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy. But if it ever happens where somebody up here doesn't have a Bible, I might even test you. I might come up here one week without a Bible just to see if somebody brings me one. We'll see. But you have to understand that we get our truth straight from God's Word every week. Who cares what I have to think about this world, what I have to say about life? This is what's important. So open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. And I'll begin by saying this. Often people in our world are known for one thing that makes them special or unique, right? Like if I said Bill Cosby, right? You'd probably know him for his comedy. Bill Cosby's hilarious, you know, one of the funniest people ever. If I said Pavarotti, you'd probably be like, wow, yeah, the voice. Put him in a room with a microphone and tens of thousands of people will sit down to hear him sing. Or if I said Mother Teresa, what's she known for? Well, her compassion, her love for the poor, that's what makes her so unique. Well, what about Jesus Christ? What is it that makes Jesus unique? What is it that makes him so special that 2,000 years later, We're still talking about him. Maybe, frankly, you're here today and maybe you're like, what's the big deal? The guy's been dead for a long time. Sure, he was a great historical figure, but why are we still so focused on him? That's the question for today. What makes Jesus unique, one of a kind in all the world? And what's so special about him that he can do something in my life that no one else can? That's what we're talking about today. Let's pray, then we'll get into the word together. Lord Jesus, we ask you to reveal to us through your word what makes you one of a kind, what makes you so special around the world. Pray that you would open our eyes to see what your word has to say and help every heart to weigh it. We pray that you would manifest your presence through the spoken word so that you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is a call to prayer. We started it last week. We're continuing on this week, and it says this, verse 3. This is good, this filling the the world and the church with prayer. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, telling the truth, I'm not lying, teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is a call to prayer because God wants to see the truth go out and save people all around the world. It says, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, What makes Jesus so special? Well, we'll get to that. But first, there's some foundational truths we have to cover to reveal what makes Christ so special. Write this down. Here's the first thing we see. First thing is, I need God to save me. If the Bible says that God is our Savior, it implies that I need God to save me. God is our Savior, meaning we are in peril, in need of being saved. We're in need of being rescued from what? From sin, from death, from darkness. And we can't save ourselves. God must save us. I always try when the word save comes up in the Bible, I always try to come up with new creative ways to show you what it means to need a rescue. I've showed you videos of car accidents with people getting saved from that or a fire breaks out and the firefighter saves, right? Well, today... You've probably been following the news, right? You see what's going on in Iraq and the Middle East, um, and, and you've seen ISIS, right, and how cruel they are and how horrible they are, not just to Christians, but to anybody who doesn't share their faith. Minority religious groups are on the run from ISIS because if they get caught, they're killing people like they're, like they're animals. Well, get this, the Iraqi army, the Iraqi military, uh, flew in on some helicopters to deliver supplies, food and water. There's families and kids and grandmothers on the run, right? Right? and they touched down just briefly and check out this video check out what happened when they came down and landed these desperate civilians came racing towards the helicopter uh, throwing their children on board the aircraft uh, the crew was just trying to pull up as many people as possible uh, a, a little baby, a red-headed baby that ended up in my hands. It was chaotic, Uh, it it was crazy, Uh, but we were able to then lift off with about 20 civilians. The crowd on board the helicopter burst into tears, as did some of the Peshmerga fighters who were on board there trying to help them. Just the relief was palpable. I've been doing this job for more than 10 years. I have never seen A situation as desperate as this, as emotionally charged as this. Those are people who knew they needed to be rescued. Uh, What I didn't see in that video in the background is a guy sitting in a lawn chair. I didn't see anybody sitting back, totally unaware of his peril, denying that there was a true threat coming his way. I saw people throwing their children on the helic. Why? Rushing to their rescue because they knew they stood in peril. Now, when the Bible comes along and says God is our Savior, it implies you and I are in greater peril than if ISIS was five miles down the road in closing. All right, eternal peril, judgment for sin and death, hell forever, worse, worse than the peril those people were in. And when you hear that God is willing to be the rescuer, he's got a plan to save you. You should run faster to him than you would to that helicopter because you know your peril. I need God to save me. I need to face the danger of my sin and my condemnation and the dark forces around me. I need to face it. It says in verse 3, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved. Write this down. I need God to save me and so does everyone else. He desires all people to be saved. This isn't just a truth for Christians. This isn't just a truth for Americans. This is a truth for everyone. Everyone, because it says God desires all people to be saved, we learn something about our God. We learn something about his heart. We learn something about our mission. God desires all people to be saved. His heart is broken for the world. Ours should be broken for the world as well. The most natural reading of the text here is that God does want all people to be saved. Some scholars will try and narrow that to types of people or kinds of people or even just the church, but you can't do that. The best, most natural reading is that the heart of God is set with love on saving all of the people. It is within God's heart and love to save everyone. That's the heart of our God. And frankly, in this text, the word all comes up so many times, it's incredibly hard theologically to limit it to anything other than all people. It says in Chapter 2, verse 1, that we're to pray for all people. Verse 2, including all in high positions. Verse 4, because God wants all to be saved. Verse 5, there's a mediator between God and men, which is inclusive of all people. Verse 6, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all. All, 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 all. Which means we're supposed to face the universal scope of God's offer of salvation. And we're supposed to know that his heart is to save all. Does everyone get saved? No. But we're not supposed to write anybody off. We're not supposed to forsake any individual or any group. We're not supposed to turn away from anybody because that's their mission because God wants that person, that group to be saved. That's our mission. And what was going on here in the church is the Jewish teachers were drastically narrowing in their own theology, who God wanted to save. Well, you know, let's face it. Mostly they would say he wants to save Jews. And really just Jews who believe our specific brand of teaching. The Gentiles, probably not. They were so narrowing the scope and limiting the scope of who God wanted to save. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He gets right in there and he breaks their little niche apart and says all. The gospel is for all. Not just all in your city or region, but all everywhere. That's the heart of God, and that should be the heart of God's people. Hey, do you want to know the secret to erasing, to erasing all racism and ethnic rivalry across the planet? Eliminating all class discrimination? Do you want to know the secret? Is realizing that those are people God wants to save. You realize that Christ died for you, and it changes your relationship to Him forever. You realize Christ died for everyone? It changes your relationship to everyone forever. God loves them. He desires that they would be saved. The fact that God wants all to be saved reveals something about Him, but it also reveals something about humanity. You see, if God wants all to be saved, we have to understand that that means all need to be saved. It's not like you can look at your relatives and say, well, you know, Aunt Trudy, she's a really good person. She's probably going to be okay. But man, Cousin Louie, I've seen his Facebook page. Boy, he really needs to be saved. If God wants all to be saved, it means all must be saved. It means everyone in your sphere of life, students, teachers, everyone you work with, all of your family members, all of your distant relatives, they all have a common need. That need is to be saved by God. Do you believe that? Do you look at everyone in your life and say, you know what? That is my mission. Christ came for them. The gospel is true for them. I can't narrow down the love and heart of God. I've got to open it up to those people, even my enemies. God's love is for them. We learn about humanity. We learn about God. God wants all to be saved. I need God to save me and so does everybody else. Here's the second thing you can write down. I must believe the truth about Jesus. Write that down. I must believe the truth about Jesus. It says in verse 4, He desires all people to be saved. How? To come to the knowledge of the truth. What truth? For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. God wants all to be saved, but he's not going to save everyone. Why? Because there's a truth that you must come to believe if you are going to be saved. He expressed his desire for all to be saved, not by just letting everyone in heaven and saying, I'll look past all of your sins, wink, wink. We just won't talk about them anymore. No, that would be unjust. That would be unjust. The way God expressed His desire for all to be saved is He sent His Son. There's a truth about Jesus that we have to believe if we're going to truly be saved. You see, God's love won't cancel out His truth. His truth must be believed in order for His love to be received. I have to believe the truth about Christ to be saved. The truth is that there are many different claims out there of how a person gets right with God. In fact, there are many different claims about who God is, his nature, and even the person of Christ. Is it enough for my friend who has a different view to sincerely believe their faith? Is it enough if someone else is devoted to their religion that God would look upon them and accept that devotion? Well, it says here he wants all people to be saved. How? To come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Let's unpack this. I must believe the truth. What's the truth? Write this down. There's only one true God. Write that down. There's only one true God. The Bible again and again is monotheistic. It says there is one God. That could be taken a couple ways. One, meaning singular, compared to all other different rival gods. Meaning one is true, the rest are false. One singular true God. However, the word one has a double meaning. It could also mean one as in joined together, meaning the one God who is manifested in three persons. So when you get married, you and your spouse become one. So one can mean a relational unit. One can also mean singular. It can mean singular. It can mean plural. God is both. He's the singular one true God and no rival is true. But he's one, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit are combined in essence and in attributes forever. He's one. He's united as the triune God. He's the one true God. There's not many. There's not others. There's the one God in three persons, eternally one. And where you stand with that one God is crucial. And what you believe about that one God is eternally bearing on your soul. Now, in our day and age, you'll hear often, you'll hear often people say, well, you know what? All the religions basically teach the same thing. Have you heard that before? Well, you know what? All the, I've looked into them, and all the religions basically teach the same thing. Or if they don't say that, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, yeah, they're different, but they can both be true. As long as you really believe it, then it's true for you, okay? Maybe you've heard that before. Um, Hinduism teaches that there's millions of gods, and you're one of them. Uh, even objects can be god, Buddhism teaches there is no God. Buddhists worship gods because there's a God-shaped hole in their heart that they're trying to fill, but formally, their official teaching is there is no such thing as God. In fact, there's no heaven. There's not even a spiritual realm. When you leave this world for the final time, there's nothing forever. That's Buddhism. Mormons teach that if you're good enough, you could eventually become a god and rule your own universe. In Islam, they teach that... that. Um, The Son, Jesus, is not God, only Allah is divine, and He has no Son. Jesus is simply a prophet. Are those the same? Are those the same? Are you a God and not a God? They're not the same. Will you go and be in a a place called heaven with a real Almighty Being forever, or will you evaporate like darkness? Are they the same? They're not the same. They're not the same. They're not even close to being the same. Can both be true? Can both be true? Can there be millions of gods in the heavens, including you, and only one true God that the Christian Bible claims? Can they both be true? Can there be one God in heaven who has no son and reigns alone and a God who has a divine son who's been with him forever? Can they both be true? Can you live with the one true God in heaven forever, simply a servant of his, and go on and rule your universe as a God yourself forever? Can they both be true? Can they both be true? They can't both be true. They're not the same, and they can't both be true. And those who tell you those things need to face the reality. They're not the same, and they can't both be true. I must believe the truth about Jesus. There's only one true God. Because that's true, we have to know where we stand with this one true God. The Bible says here, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, verse 5. Write this down. There's only one person who can bring me to God. There's only one God and there's only one person who can bring me to God. He's called a mediator. What's a mediator? Mediator. A mediator is someone who stands between two rivals to restore friendship, broker peace, form an agreement, or ratify a covenant. Basically, someone who comes between two individuals and brings them together. That's a mediator. How many mediators does the Bible talk about? How many competent mediators who can stand between a holy God and a fallen race and bring them together? One. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus basically bridges the gap between you and God. Check this out. This is a picture of a bridge. It's the Brooklyn Bridge while it's being put up. And those are painters back in the early 1900s. What's your job? I go paint the bridge, climb up it, and paint it. Do you have any safety harnesses? Eh, safety, schmafety. I just climb it and paint it. How'd you like that job? How'd you like the job of building a bridge between simply two land masses to try and get people to drive across? Wow. Jesus is the bridge. He's the only bridge between God and man. He bridges the gap. My daughter, Ellie plays softball, and she had a game, traveling game in Lockport earlier this summer. So I'm driving down, it's far away, driving down there to Lockport. Got to get her to the game on time. And there's a bridge. You got to go over the, you know, the channel to get to the baseball game. We get to the bridge, and it's traffic jam on the bridge. Two-lane bridge. Who thought that up? Traffic jam, can't get over the bridge. I'm pull it out my phone siri find me another route no other route over unless you want to totally go out of your way and then be 20 minutes late one way this bridge take it or leave it so i took it waited in traffic to get all the way over the bridge and at the game i'm trying to find another way home no good way just the one bridge got across it jesus said i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me he's the bridge He's the one mediator between God and man. Well, what makes him so special? How come he's the only one? It sounds awfully exclusive to say that your teacher is the only one who can do that. What makes him so special? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus became 100% man. He was born in an ordinary fashion, conceived miraculously, but he was born a normal little baby. He had to be carried around everywhere he went. He had to cry for every calorie. What humility that displayed on his part to be born an ordinary child. But he wasn't just ordinary. He was one of a kind. You see, he lived the perfect life, and the Bible says he never sinned. There were six or seven trials the night before they crucified him. All right? They were looking for anything to convict him of. Do you know what they found? Nothing. Nothing. They found nothing. He never sinned, though he was tempted just like you and me. Therefore, he has human credentials that no one else has. No one else has lived the perfect life and has truly fulfilled the righteous standards of God. No one. He alone lived a perfect life and never sinned once. He's one of a kind. That gives him human credentials to appear before a holy God and to represent you and me like no one else can. He can stand before God and fulfill his righteous demands on behalf of all of us. You can't do that. You've sinned. I can't do that. I've sinned. But Christ, the sinless lamb, can appear before God and fulfill his demands for righteousness. But Jesus also has divine credentials. He was from heaven. He kept telling people, I came down from heaven and I'm going back there. Heaven was my home before I lived here. In fact, he said, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The next time somebody tells you at a family party what it was like to be in God's presence before the universe was even here, you'll give them a kooky look. What do you mean before the universe was here? You weren't around. No one was around. Only God was around. Ding. Ding. For Jesus to claim that he was around before anyone else was around. The Bible even goes on to say that everything was made for Christ and by Christ. He has divine credentials. God the Son stepped into the world and became 100% man. He alone has the spiritual authority to represent you to God and to represent God to you. No one else can represent God to you. No one can come to you and speak for God. No one can come to you and give you what heaven has for you. No one can go back to God, pick up forgiveness and grace, and deliver that to your front door. But God, that makes Jesus one of a kind. That sets him apart from every other religious leader and makes him the only way for you to get back to God. He's the one mediator. The Old Testament saints knew that this needed to happen. Job and Uh, Job 9, 32 to 33 said this, For he, God, is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Job knew he needed someone to put a hand on God and a hand on him and bridge the gap. The Bible says your sins have separated you from God. Jesus is the only mediator who can put a hand on you and a hand on God and bring you together. He's the bridge. He's the bridge. There's only one true God. There's only one person who can bring me to God. Nobody else has the human credentials or the divine credentials to bridge that gap. Write this down. Jesus is unique in his person, but he's also unique in his work. Jesus died as a ransom for my soul. Write that down. Jesus died as a ransom for my soul. It goes on to say, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself... As a ransom for all. It says he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus gave, he died as a ransom for my soul. The word ransom is actually a pretty insulting concept. Ransom was used to describe the payment made to free a slave. Um, It's a payment to secure the release of someone who is in bondage. Um, it's the price paid. Now, the word ransom is still used today in a negative sense, right? Like, I've got your, you know, whatever. You've got to pay the ransom to get the person back. It's still negative. It's a payment made to free somebody who is being held. What does that mean? That means the Bible claims that you and I are captives to sin. Our relationship to sin is one of bondage. We're shackled. We are slave citizens in the kingdom of sin and we can't free ourselves. A price must be paid, a debt is owed to bail us out, to spring us free. We're in bondage to sin and we can't get free. What's the answer? God sends a Savior, a Mediator, someone who will ransom us, someone who will render the payment to secure our release from bondage to sin. And that's Christ Jesus. What's the payment? Well, the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die in the place of the sinful person. That sounds awfully harsh. Why can't God just overlook everything and let everyone come to heaven? So you want an unjust God ruling the universe forever? You want a God who overlooks sin and tolerates it and lets the people who did you wrong get away with it? You want that God forever? I don't want injustice in heaven, do you? I want justice. I want a God who knows right and wrong and establishes His throne on righteousness. I want a God who rids the earth of wrongdoing for eternity. How is he going to do that? He's going to get someone to pay the debt. He's going to get someone to do the time. He's going to get someone to pay it so that there's no more unrighteousness. And that person is Christ. He became a ransom. The idea of a ransom has a few nuances. It can can be uh, expressed as one who represents you, meaning Christ can represent you. To secure your release, but it also can be somebody who acts as a substitute, meaning he died in your place. You were supposed to get certain treatment for your sins. Jesus took that for you in your place, therefore you can go free. Both are true. He died on your behalf and he died in your place. That's what it means to have a ransom. This is a really big deal that a lot of people overlook. It always grieves me when I hear people say, Well, I've had a rough year. What has God done for me lately? Where's he been as I've been going through this hard time? Um, His son was killed for you. What more do you want? Have you ever offered your son to die for another person? I just imagine perhaps a U.S. soldier going into Iraq and giving his life for his country. And then I imagine the father after he's buried his son, maybe even his only son, I imagine his father being at a party and I imagine what that father would feel like if there was somebody who said, I'm against this war and I think those men are dying for nothing and it has nothing to do with my freedom. I imagine how that father would feel. I imagine how everyone in the room would feel as they look at the ungrateful American who doesn't understand the price that is paid to protect the freedom he enjoys and I imagine the wrath that father would feel, that he would give such a sacrifice for such an ungrateful person. And God feels the same way. The fact that he would offer the greatest sacrifice of his son to die in the place of rebellious, sinful humanity. And then, and then here we are, say, so what's he done for me lately? And we tell him about the, what Jesus did, and it's no big deal to the person. That's sad. And it's unforgivable. The truth is God made the ultimate sacrifice and displayed his love in the greatest way. And he did it for all. This is important to understand. It says here he gave himself as a ransom for all. What does that mean? This has been controversial for forever. Um, Did Jesus actually die for everyone? Or was his death only for his church? Um, This is the the debate over atonement. Is it limited atonement or is it unlimited atonement? Um, I'll just say this, that... Um, My biblical conviction is that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for all. The most natural reading of the text is that it's unrestricted. Everyone can be saved. That The atonement is unlimited in its offer. I think when it comes to the limited atonement, I know that there's several people in our church who believe that. We can believe different things in this church and still be one church family. It's not like the elders are going to sit you down and tell you what you need to believe about, right? We don't have a little theology test before you join the church. So listen, hear me, you can disagree with me on this. We could still be brothers in Christ. You can still be in a tender at harvest. But I'm sharing with you my biblical conviction. My biblical conviction is that limited atonement is more of a logical argument than a biblical one. Meaning Jesus only died for his church. The idea that Jesus only died for the people who would accept it. That's called limited atonement. I think that's more of a logical argument than a biblical one. Their objections are, they would say, well... If Jesus died for everyone and they don't receive it, then grace is wasted because it's not applied. Or they would also say that uh, grace is weakened because how did Jesus die for everyone, but it didn't work on them. So they would say it must be limited because otherwise it would have worked. They would also say um, that God's sovereignty is somehow jeopardized because he wants all to be saved, but it didn't happen. And that can't be true, so he must not have actually wanted them to be saved in that way. Those are the objections. Those are the rationale of people who believe in limited atonement. I would just say this. I'd say if you hold a limited atonement, you have way bigger problems than that. For you, Jesus is weakened because he can't save most people, because he didn't die for most people, and that's a major theological problem. I'd save you if I could, but I didn't die for you. Sorry. That's a major theological problem that reduces the work of Christ. It also diminishes the grace because if if Christ didn't die for most people, it reduces the grace that's made available to the undeserving. In addition, God's love is drastically reduced because he doesn't really love most of the world in a sacrificial sense. Those are major theological problems that diminish the character of God, the person of Christ, and the work of Christ, and I don't think there's a good answer for that. That's why I would just say that my biblical conviction is the strongest biblical case can be made that Jesus died to save the world. In other words, God is willing and able to save everyone. There is no deficit in the heart of God. The entire deficit of why people don't get saved falls within the human, not within God. He is not to blame, they are. I think that's also crucial if we're going to get our mission right. Because if we do, in the back of our mind, feel like the atonement, that Christ's death is only for the few, it's going to really ruin our motivation to get the gospel to everyone. Um, We have to have the broken heart for the world. 1 John 2, 2 says that he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hey, again, you're free to disagree with me on that. I just want you to hear my heart and my biblical convictions. I need God to save me, so does everyone else. I must believe the truth about Jesus. There's only one God, one mediator, and Jesus, his work is unique. His person is one of a kind. The work he did on the cross, no one else accomplished. Here's the third realization from this truth. Therefore, we must preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Based on that reality, we must preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the whole point. He's driving this whole point to expanding the heart of the church, to desire to see people saved from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Look at verse 7. It says in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What's with that I'm telling the truth? It's because there's people in the church, the Jews in particular, who are narrowing the scope of who God wants to love and save. He knows, as he says, I'm supposed to go to the Gentiles and share the truth with everyone. He knows that they're going to be frowning at him. Okay, so everybody in this section, just kind of give me a dirty look. Just give me a real dirty look while I say it. I mean, dirtier. Come on, dirtier. All right, and as I read this, I'm going to be like, I was appointed a preacher and a pot. Keep it up. Come on. I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. not lying. Teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There are people in the church who are about to be like, he's lying. He's good for nothing. He wants to go out and reach those people. In other words, there's a fight in the church over where they should take the gospel. And Paul was telling Timothy, you need to win that fight. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. No one gets to hem it in. And that's a truth for us. You see, we're going to get... Too focused on our own needs. We're going to get our eyes locked on our own needs as a church and we're going to fail then to look out and to see the need of everyone to hear the truth of the gospel again and again. We have to be called back to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what we're commissioned to do. This is a Jew preaching about a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile world. A Gentile means just a non-Jew. You know, at Harvest we have four pillars One of our pillars is evangelism, which is sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. We believe with all of our heart that people have to hear the truth of Christ if they can be saved. And if they don't hear it, they can't be saved. And it's with that urgency that we race to the ends of the earth with the life-saving message of the gospel. We are that helicopter bringing that rescue. We need to go. We believe that. We've got to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And how do we do it? Well, hey, I can celebrate so many things this morning. Uh, You know, a year ago, we sent two teams over to um, Eastern Europe to Brasov uh, in Romania. And we helped to get a new church plant launched in Romania. Right now, there's about six or seven harvest churches in Romania. Um, And we helped one of them to launch. And do you know, earlier this morning, they celebrated their first anniversary. They turned one. Isn't that so cool? And we helped to make that church happen. It's a tough area. They've only got 30 people. They're just this little core group of people surrounded by dead orthodoxy. And they're trying to make inroads, and we're right there helping them. It's so exciting. Do you know, also, we sent Pastor Brandon out. We've got a picture here of Pastor Brandon. This is him at Harvest Davenport, there on the left. And uh, everyone in this picture either is part of the church plant, because Harvest Davenport was a church plant from Naperville, or they're getting ready to go and plant a new church somewhere. And Pastor Brandon, it's 99% settled that he's going to Buffalo. All right, And how cool will it be, fall of next year, uh, 2015, if we send a busload of people out for the first service at Harvest Buffalo, and Pastor Brandon's up there with people who don't even know today that he's coming. God's getting them ready, though. You know what, we're planting churches. This is our way of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. I also already told you about CSP numerous times, which is an organization that has the goal of getting the gospel into every public high school in the nation through students. It's an awesome organization. It started in California, came to Illinois last year, soon to expand to Michigan and other states as well. Our high schoolers are leading the charge to get the gospel into their schools. College students from Trinity are right there leading the charge. It's happening here. It's amazing. I told you about RZIM. Do you know what Ravi Zacharias and his team do? They go to places that are shut off to the church. They go into countries, perhaps even Muslim countries, where Christianity is illegal, conversion is punishable by death, and they are given the ability to speak at at universities and in government buildings and share the truth of Christ. Do you know how hostile some of these audiences are? There was one time where Ravi Zacharias was sharing the truth and there was a Muslim group in the front row and they all brought their swords with them, deciding moment by moment if Ravi should make it to the airport alive. What a noble journey RZIM is on to bring the gospel into those hostile places and then even to come here to Aurora and to train us how to share our faith. Hey, if you can get to that event Tuesday night or next Thursday, come on out. I can't wait to hear what these guys have to share about what God's doing. We're trying to form partnerships with other organizations. We're trying to form partnerships with individuals too. Do you know that there are new churches that launched In the Harvest Fellowship today? Um, Harvest San Antonio, Texas just launched, um, brand new church. A Harvest also launched in, um, Kelowna in Canada. A Harvest also launched today in Nepal. There's numerous Harvest Bible chapels in Nepal. New churches, three of them just launched today. Came into existence where there wasn't a church just before today. It's exciting to be a part of a church plant movement. We also support missionaries. We've got the Crosland family, um, In Papua New Guinea, do you know that there's so many language groups in Papua New Guinea that thousands of people have never even seen a Bible in their own language? And Wycliffe Bible Translators gets translations done in all their languages, and we've got a family right there helping to make that happen. We've also got Mike Dawson and his family down in the the jungles of Venezuela. He's reaching a pre-Stone Age group of people. uh, I mean, more primitive than any other people on the planet. And there he is. He's living there. He's lived there his whole life. They kicked all the missionaries out of Venezuela and then they came to kick him out and he said, no, I'm a citizen. What? Yeah, my parents brought me here. I was born here in the jungle. I'm a citizen. They can't get rid of him. They can't get rid of him. He's right there, a light in the darkness. We support them. We helped launch Pastor Bobby over a year ago. Bobby Greenwood recently had an anniversary too down in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're planting churches. We're partnering with evangelistic organizations. We're sending out church planters. Why? Because this is our mission. We need to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Hey listen, what makes Jesus so unique? That's the question we started with. (coughs) I need God to save me and so does everyone else. It's the truth of Jesus that saves. Because there's one God, one person who can bring me to that God. That person did something on the cross no one else can do. This is the gospel we have to preach to the ends of the earth. And looking back at verse 1, it says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This, really, this chapter is a call to prayer. It's a call to prayer. It's a theologically loaded call to prayer. I think the best way to end this message, the the, the last message and this message combined, is for us to pray right now for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Let's all bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and just join me for a word of prayer right now. The Bible's calling for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the one true God. You are the creator, you are the sustainer. All glory in heaven and on earth belongs to you alone. Lord Jesus, you are the one mediator between God and man. You existed in glory in the presence of the Father before the world began. Everything was made by you and for you. And you came down. You came down. Took on flesh. Lived a perfect life. Endured the agony of the cross. And you did it for us. Thank you for your sacrifice and your love. Father, thank you for the ultimate display of love that you gave for the world. We need never doubt your love for us because of the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you rose again and we believe that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you and you command us to go and make disciples. Bless us, O oh Lord, as we try and fulfill that mission. Bless Pastor Christi in Romania, filling him with your spirit, enabling him to have courage, patience, resolve, enabling him to have hope that he will see a great awakening to the gospel in his city. We don't know how, Lord, but you do. We ask that you would part the heavens and come down and do a work there that we can't explain or stop. Bless the Crosslands in Papua New Guinea. May the word of God be translated and spread rapidly and be honored. Bless the Dawson's down in Venezuela. Fill them with your spirit and protect them by your hand. Guard them against the enemy. Grow the church by your spirit. Come against the forces of darkness and display again and again your might and your power and your truth and your love. Bless Pastor Brandon, Lord, going ahead of him in every way, rallying every necessary person and resource so that he might launch strong next fall. Fill him with joy and great resolve to be a preacher of the gospel. Purify his heart and bless his family, O Lord. Strengthen them by your spirit. We pray for the RZIM events coming up the next two weeks. Fill the speakers with your spirit. Anoint them, O Lord. Guide them and carry them along. And may their words bless every harvest in the fellowship as this becomes eventually a teaching tool for them to use. Lord, make this more powerful than we could ever plan it to be. We pray, Lord, right here that our high school students and college students would go out successfully reaching their peers and teachers and leaders with the truth of Christ. Jesus, you are the one mediator between God and man. As we share this truth with the world, may it erupt in power and may we see lives being changed forever. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name.